Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, a shelf isolation special. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your host and the author of The Sisterhood, a love letter to the women who have shaped us. My debut novel, Insatiable, is coming in spring 2021 and it's available for pre-order now. At the time of recording, we're all shelf isolating. I really hope we'll be back beside the bookshelves soon. But for now, we're talking to beloved guests, people we've admired for a while and friends of the YB family about the books they're reaching for at the moment for comfort and nourishment. This conversation fits into all three categories. It's with the author, journalist and dearest old pal of mine, Lauren Bravo. Lauren's latest book, How to Break Up with Fast Fashion, came out at the start of the year. And I hope you know her previous book, What Would the Spice Girls Do? Both smart, compassionate, extremely funny, tender pieces of non-fiction. And both books that make me desperate for her to write a novel because she clearly has the range. Anyway, we talked about diary books, borrowers and Bill Bryson. So, Lauren Bravo, what are you reading at the moment? Are you reading anything? Are you feeling like it's comforting or is it really hard to concentrate while the world does what it's doing? So, um, I have been reading, actually. I started off uh, kind of, you know, whenever this started, seven weeks ago, is it? Um, I had a whole weekend in bed because I had some very mild symptoms. I coughed once and, um, you know, put myself to bed for, for a week. Um, and so I did read like quite solidly. I had the first day that I can remember where I just plowed through a book in a whole day. Um, and that was Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. It was so, so good. So I have been reading. And then <laughs> one of the, the next things that I did was I found myself absolutely craving um, a book that I had read when I was about 12, maybe and hadn't thought about it in you know the intervening decades and then just suddenly out of absolutely nowhere um you know when you kind of try and dredge a piece of information up from your memory and it's like a physical effort I couldn't remember the name of the book I could barely remember the author's name I couldn't really remember what happened but I could just remember the front cover oh so before you say describe the front cover I don't think I'll get it but I'll have a go you might have mentioned it before and I will sound really smart but I won't be all right, so it is uh, three girls. You've got one in the middle. She's got ginger hair. Um, she's wearing a red jumper and a 
blue pleated school skirt, blue and school uniform, and they're in front of a school and there are two kind of friends behind her. I think it sounds kind of Gigi Bloomy, but I feel like if it was Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, that doesn't sound like the plot of that book. And also I feel like you wouldn't have forgotten that. No, you're right, I would not. Um, so it was by, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, Jean Ur, is it? Yuri? And I looked her up after I'd remembered this and she was prolific. She wrote hundreds and hundreds of books and everything from kind of books for quite young kids to, uh, you know, kind of full length novels and things. And this was um, the book called Joe in the Middle. And it was, I think, late 80s or early 90s. I don't know how I acquired it. I seem to remember that my cov- my copy had like a plastic jacket on it. So I think I maybe got it from the library and never took it back. Um, I just, I spent this gorgeous weekend. I mean, you know, as gorgeous as a weekend can be during the Panny D. You know, don't worry too much about spoilers, but what was it about Joe in the Middle that stayed in your head and made you track it? And how did you track it down? So I found it online. It was a secondhand I'm not sure it's still in print, so I found a second-hand copy online for about three quid or something and got it in the post a few days later. And did you manage um, to Google image search it by just describing what you could remember of the cover? I searched for Genia first and I looked through all the titles of her books and I still couldn't find it because I think it was sort of, I don't know, I, I think she's written so many that it wasn't even considered um, <laughs> worthy of mention on whatever website I found. And then I, I just did some really solid thinking I just forced myself to remember the title and then it came to me. Human um, Google. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, but it's funny because as soon as I started reading, it all just came back, you know, like oh, every paragraph I remembered. And so it's a classic high school story. It's um, two girls who are best friends and they're next door neighbours and they start at a secondary school. Um, and, you know, their friendship is tested in many ways by various outsiders and in- interlopers. And, you know, they each get different hobbies. And um, it's at an all girls school. And, you know, I went to an all girls school. And I think when you did, you kind of, constantly like a moth to a flame you're just drawn to other things about the old girl's experience um it was I mean I'm not recommending listeners go out and buy this book because I'm going to I think part of the reason I loved it so much was just because I loved it when I was 12 and it was obviously that point of the you know the beginning of of all this um all, all this capped up that I was yeah really craving something purely nostalgic completely escapist probably quite juvenile I mean it's a bit problematic like definitely was written in the late 80s or early 90s like there was a bit of inexcusable kind of fat shaming in there yeah so I'm not telling people to rush out and buy it but I really loved it and I do think that going back and reading something from childhood not even necessarily like a classic but just anything well that's the thing I will admit that I it could be much, much, much more familiar with the YA market than I am. And I love, you know, like Holly Bourne, former guest of the podcast. I feel like she sort of gets that real, you know, the and Louise Renison, who, you know, we both miss very, very much. Um, yeah. The, you know, the funniness and the energy. But I remember just eating up with a spoon, these sort of YA classics that had that setting where really not very much happened and the only ones I hear about now why there's like tons of drama and maybe there's a fantasy element or it's all go and it's all quite glossy I'm like is anyone still writing those lovely books that are just like 
it's crap when you're 12. You know what? Like I, I'm a terrible person and what I'm about to admit is, is shameful. Um, <laughs> I'm not proud of it, but I, this was my problem when I was growing up with Jacqueline Wilson was that her books had too many sad social issues in them. And I just <laughs> wanted to read happy books about people that had nice lives. Um, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that out loud, but it's true. And so the, the Jacqueline Wilson books I loved were the Girls in Love. Girls mm. Fresh oh my God, them. do you remember Glamorous Magda? Glamorous Magda and Nadine and Ellie, and I just adored them. I think... I I was a little bit too old for the, or I I thought of myself as being too old for those. And I think it's my sister Livy who was given those books. And I sort of picked one up one day because I had, because I got... um, Story of Tracy Beaker. Yes. Is it just called The Story of Tracy Beaker? I think so. I got that in my stocking, I think when I was six or seven. And I was, and I think that was actually one of the first books where I had not read anything written in that sort of tone before um and it was very I guess I don't know if um Jacqueline Wilson had a sort of Sue Townsendy if she wanted to really you know be a sort of Sue Townsend for kids because I thought those observations about the kind of the way she's quite funny and sneery about sort of hippies and a certain sort of lefty liberal you know that went way over my head when I was seven but but I remember my mum um, cause I was desperate to read the suitcase kid and I think I got it out of the library and I loved it. But I was like, this is just too bleak for children. And I mean, it's absolutely a symptom of my, you know, massive privilege in having a relatively nice, easy, lovely childhood. But yeah, I was just like, God, everyone in these books is really dealing with some stuff. And I remember my mum being a bit like, well, I think that's probably the point, you know? And I was like, yeah, but I don't, <laughs> that's not what I read books for. It's not meant to be like EastEnders, God. Um, <laughs> I am ashamed of myself. I'm sorry. I'd like to think I've grown as a person. So one of the other books that I've read during this time is one that I think you and I both read over Easter weekend, which is, of course, Brother of the More Famous Jack. Oh. Um, oh, which is just a book made for this kind of bollocks, isn't it? Like, just, yeah, that book, I was thinking about it. Because I first read it when I was maybe 19. I think I was at uni and my... So you were Catherine, basically. Because you were... Uh, yeah, no, I was absolutely, of course I was Catherine. Because you yeah, were at, was, at uni in, in sort of in London as well, weren't you? And that like North London was your stomping was. ground. That's probably where the similarities end. Um, yeah, none of my lecturers ever took me to their sort of, you know, charming bohemian rambling house in Brighton and allowed me to sleep with their sons. Um, and my experience was all the poorer for it, I have to say. But, oh, that book, it definitely um, planted a specific seed in my brain, which is, the idea that actually it's quite cool to have quite a grubby kitchen. <laughs> that is something I'm definitely still exploring to this day and, you know, quite strongly at the moment. Um, it was one of those bits of culture that really kind of gave me this idea that actually all the most interesting people and all the best people worth knowing don't have very clean houses. <laughs> Did anything strike you as being very different about it now that you missed before like for example I was I think I was a little bit like Roger first time around I could absolutely see the appeal and this time I thought no yeah absolutely yeah definitely and I don't know if it's partly conditioning because we know what happens in the end so you are sort of rooting for for Catherine to realize a little bit sooner um that he's not worth her time I think it was interesting the um is it 
Sally, the wife Roger eventually married. Yes, is she a, a chorister and she's very sort of Oxfordy and yeah and very sort of churchy and quite prim and I thought I loved the way that Barbara Trapedo drew her so you actually you you end up liking her and being quite sympathetic and I think all the women in the book are allowed to kind of be a little bit annoying a little bit sort of flighty or flaky or kind of um you know less than perfect in various ways but it would have been very easy to make her the enemy yeah and this like dud of a woman and actually that is almost the way that you sort of think you're meant to see her and then by the end of the book you're like okay no actually she's she's a nice wife and they're happy and he was never right for her. kind of like um cassie in the other side of the story yes cassie yeah that is another book that i have read um in the past few weeks actually oh. yeah really loved kind of jumping into something like very long and like but not meaty <laughs> do you know what I mean just I mean that's you know Marianne Keyes's absolute gift is just bouncing you along and before you know it you've read 400 pages and I've blown by. reread that quite recently and I was stunned by how much of it holds up and I know people who work sort of in the, the business end of publishing who I have a feeling that if you'll say an agent or an editor or in that area when a writer says I've got this character who's an agent, and I've got this character who's an editor, and this is publishing accurate, but viewed through my lens as a writer. I wonder if some people will say, oh my goodness, how accurate, and some people say, oh, let's, let's put my back up a bit. But I find it really compelling. And I think about how, I was going to say how little has changed, how little has changed other than, other than the advances. <laughs> Vast, vast sums of money just being like pinged around in when was it 2004 I think it was written and yeah that's quite depressing to read as an author isn't it but I just chose to believe that those bits were entirely fictional <laughs> I, I could happily just read all of Marianne Keyes' back catalogue until lockdown is lifted and beyond um, right now Oh, which one? Do you have a favourite? Is the one that you've reread the most? Because like, not to kind of confuse us too much, but I was thinking about Brother of the More Famous Jack and how I yearned for the cosy Goldman universe, but then how I had really forgotten how heartbreaking and distressing the middle section is. Last Chance Saloon is one of my favourite Marion Keys. But it, it's about... Um, a friend has cancer and they think he's dying and at the time they think it might be AIDS and it's I think a really something so serious tackled so lightly and not lightly in the sense that she doesn't do justice to the gravity of it but lightly in a I suppose it's you know as as we are now that even in the midst of a tragedy you're not walking around all the time going oh my god this is a tragedy you know you are you live Well, that's the interesting thing. I spoke to a psychologist yesterday for um, a feature that I've just written um, who said that humour is one of the most important coping mechanisms that we can have during times of crisis. She said, you know, the absolute thing we must understand is that you are not being um, disrespectful by finding ways to laugh right now. She said it's really important because actually laughing is one of the ways that we sort of heal and take time out and are able to kind of then you know cope with all of the trauma and terribleness again because I think it's funny and miraculous there are some books that will just keep making you laugh even though you know what the jokes are you know you know what's coming um 
what do you reread for laughs and what do you think the funniest book that you've ever read is? Oh, I mean, I feel obliged here to not issue the most obvious answer, which I think you know is going to be Bridget Jones, um, because I've just talked about her so much. Um, but yeah. Oh, do you know what? Bill Bryson's Notes from a Big Country. That is one of my ultimate comfort books. And my copy is so dog-eared from being carted around. And it's one of those books that I kind of always want with me if I'm like on a, in a strange place or on my own. I used to take it on holiday with me because I knew that if I didn't get on with whatever books I took that I hadn't read before, I would always, always be happy with that. Um, I suppose it, that's a weird kind of, it's like inverse travel writing, isn't it? Travel yeah. writing. The, the comfort blanket you must bring. He is definitely one of the things that made me want to be a journalist. Um, I read that book probably when I was about 14, I guess. And my parents were his big Bill Bryson fans. And and is the one that you've got, the copy you had when you were 14? Yeah, it would be my dad's copy that I have poached, never given back. Because it's written, it, because it's columns, it's newspaper columns, and it's so bite-sized, it's so dip-intoable. Um, and some of his jokes are so seared on my brain that I do find myself accidentally stealing them in, in articles um, and then having to sort of weigh up whether to take it out or whether to leave it in and pretend it's a tribute you know it's a streg. <laughs> do you know what another really funny book is that I have been reading? E.M. Delafield's The Diary of a Provincial Lady. Oh! I have because I think it was Sarah Manning uh, talked about it on this very podcast I believe and um I love The Diary of a Nobody. So that is one of my favourite comic books that I go back to again and again. Um, and I have given it to people. Um, I made my boyfriend read it um, partly to sort of test his response. Ah, because you wrote that brilliant piece about test books that I really enjoyed, which we'll try oh, and put thanks. in the show notes. Yes, the litmus test books. So uh, which like I'm in, by the way. It's a real circle jerk. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so when I heard about The Diary of a Provincial Lady, I thought that sounds like a title of a book I would enjoy. And um, it has proved fantastic reading for these times because it really, it has that delicious claustrophobia about it in that, you know, it's this woman in the 19, the late 1920s. Although honestly, if I hadn't known that, I would have thought it was the 50s because it's so modern. Um, <laughs> so modern, it feels like the 1950s. <laughs> You know, she's very kind of wry and sarcastic and you get the impression she's a little bit too intelligent for the life of a 1920s housewife without much to do. Um, and in the later volumes, she actually writes her own book and things. But it's just got that brilliant sense of like the absolute like mundanity but getting so invested in the tiny, tiny details of household life, which it turns out it's perfect to read right now when we're not allowed out. So I've really been identifying with, yeah, the sort of minutiae of her life and the, um, the daily politics of the people in one's household and the little things that can be elevated into these kind of, you know, melodramas um, purely through boredom and the parameters of your life being pretty small, I guess. It's such a thrilling form, the diary. I think even more so than letters, because the tricky thing about a letter is they have to be sort of event laden. And well, I remember trying and failing to keep diaries as a teenager and just thinking, oh, nothing happens to me. I can't do this. Yeah. But th those are what make the best diaries or the best pretend diaries and diary books, the, the nothingness 
And it's also yeah, quite it's... comforting that there are other people who are sort of, you know, diary worthy, but so little is happening to them. Oh, completely. I mean, I, yeah, I, for the same reason, have never managed to keep a diary for longer than about three days. I used to start one every January when I was a kid. And um, yeah, by day three, it would become this massive chore that felt like homework. And then I would rebel against myself and just stop writing in it. Um, but I wish I'd been able to carry on. And like my friends and I at school, we had a, a communal notebook that we kept as a kind of diary and it would go to all our lessons with us and people would sort of share it around and take it turns to write pages and things. And it was always the absolute, yeah, the, the stupidest details. Like we were very excited when Smarty chocolate bars came out. Um, that got a page, you know. A page? Yeah, so what, so, these are chocolate bars with Smarties embedded in them? Yes. Yeah, and I remember that being a whole update was you can get Smarty bars now. And we were writing it almost <laughs> were they as, available as a time capsule for future <laughs> In the actual school or...? Yeah, I think they were in the vending machine. Ah. I think you can get some bars now. And Mrs. Callahan made us eat a boiled scone yesterday in food tech. And the boiled scone had been the, the talk of the school. Boiled um, scone? Yeah. Did I hear that to, right? It was like, I think, to, to prove that baking was the best way to make a scone, <laughs> we had to try all the other ways. We had to fricassee a scone, boil a scone. Oh, and then mashing a bit. We, we never said it. It wasn't. We, we believed you about, about the baking. We did. <laughs> Fry it. I can't tell you more than that. What can I say? That would have been, had I written a teenage diary, about 40% of it would have been new food and beverage launches. Um, and 30% would have been Peter Brain from Fame Academy, the never-ending lust um, <laughs> thereof. And <laughs> the remaining 30% would have been um, slights from various teachers and the uh, salacious private lives we imagined they had. My favourite bit of fake school gossip made up by someone was that um, one teacher and a teacher's grown-up son got engaged. The It was a, a young woman teacher and an old, old man teacher, the, the son of the old man teacher. Um, all of that. And someone misheard and assumed that the old teacher and the young teacher had got engaged and they said oh yeah I saw them shopping for engagement rings at macro yeah. <laughs> which I you really got to admire the courage of somebody who goes through with that kind of specificity it's like I can't effect. think of a jewellery yeah. shop what's that big cash and carry thing we all like yeah I saw them in macro jewellery isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you 
everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back to Lauren soon, but now it's time for a lockdown steal of the week. I just read and loved an imaginative experience by Mary Wesley. It's a skewed romantic comedy that begins with an unexpected encounter. Black humour lurks below the surface at all times, but it's tender and satisfying too. The good are rewarded and the wicked are more or less thwarted. I think Mary Wesley's novels all exist in a very similar universe, a posh, cheerfully grubby, willfully hedonistic London where people make do and loveliness blooms unexpectedly. I always think she's kind of like Mary Gateskill but jolly, or Elizabeth Strout with a broad streak of cheerful irony. An imaginative experience is great, but they're all great. Maybe start with the chamomile lawn if you haven't read it yet. I promise it will take the edge off these times. Now, back to Lauren. I should move back to books. Have you been um, reading any cookbooks in particular during this time or any food? I have taken to reading cookbooks as though they are novels. Um, So, and I think this is something Nigella probably does, isn't it? I'm sure I've got this from somebody rather than just thinking up on my own, but they just sitting down with a lovely cookbook and using it like it's, it's a picture book, flicking through, obviously thinking that one day I might make the recipes, but knowing I probably won't. One of the cookbooks I have been reading a lot, but also actually cooking from is Carbs by Laura Goodman, which I recommend to everybody because it is the only cookbook I think that has ever made me laugh out loud. It's genuinely hilarious. Like her, the sort of, you know, preamble before the recipes, the descriptions are all just so funny and the recipes are gorgeous. Um, So I've been using that quite a lot. She's got a a recipe in there for a kind of rice noodle, vaguely sort of Vietnamese rice noodle salad, but it's very versatile and you can use loads of different kind of veg and herbs and whatever you might have in the bottom of the fridge. And we've been using it every Friday to try and recreate our favourite takeaway that we always used to go and get on a Friday and um, can't have at the moment. So that's been very lovely. Bit of Ottolenghi, bit of Anna Jones. Anna Jones, uh, A Modern Cook's Year, I've been flipping through just because it's nice to think about future seasons and how, you know, time will pass and the world keeps turning and new veg will be coming in the veg box. And even if we're still on lockdown in months to come, um, certain things will be changing. And it's nice to think about future meals. And do you know what? I mean, without wanting to be that insufferable person one of the things I really have gone out of this period is is cooking again like I have been cooking so much more than I used to I've been enjoying it more um I've been more creative and yeah so actually sort of taking the time to sit down and flip through a cookbook rather than just my usual approach which is googling whatever kind of three ingredients I found festering in the crisper drawer and just hoping that BBC Good Food has got some way of like tying them all together. Um, This plus pasta plus under 10 minutes. 
<laughs> treacle plus half onion <laughs> plus chicken dippers. It's a pretentious proposition, but I do wonder whether now, because we we have a lot of time and we can do, there are certain things that I think can't be rushed. There are lots of things I do where it's like, oh, I thought I was bad at this. And I'm not actually bad. It's just it requires patience that I have never been prepared to apply. And I think reading is a very good lockdown activity because it forces you to slow down a bit. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, it's funny, actually, because everybody kind of I've seen so many people saying that they are struggling to concentrate at the moment. And I'm finding that is true to an extent, but I don't think it's because we're in a pandemic. I think it's just because my attention span is shot to shit. Um, But when I have had a few, you know, nice weekend days um, recently where I have just sat down and read a book from cover to cover, I've had absolutely nothing else to do. And I haven't had that guilt. You know, there's been no like sense of, oh, well, I really ought to go and check my emails now. I really need to, you know, put a wash on or I'm going out to something tonight. I should be in a queue for brunch. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, it's such a luxury. And it has felt really lovely just to sort of remind myself I am capable of focusing on something for hours at a time. Um, I have also been doing quite a lot of reading in tandem. So at the moment, I've got two books on the go. Um, I've got Portrait, uh, sorry, Diary of a Provincial Lady. And then I've also got um, Me Talk Pretty One Day by David Sedaris. Oh, perfect. Yeah, equally pretty, uh, equally funny, rather, but very different kinds of books. And I've just been sort of, uh, you know, like having two delicious picnic dips on the table, just been sort of, you know, picking one up and then the other, according to my mood. You are the lovely flaky cheese straw. <laughs> yes, I am. Not a celery stick. Let's be real. From fiction... Who do you think, and you can answer either or both, or it doesn't have to be a definitive answer, but let's just hash it out. Worst and best people to be locked down with? Oh, such a good question. I mean, I think the main character in um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moschweg, she would be the only person I know to give you the space um, okay, if we're going quite literal, I would say I would say the borrowers because they wouldn't take up too much of your space. Um, they'd be great at finding things you've lost. I've managed to lose three socks in lockdown, which uh, like I'm just I haven't left the house. I know they're here somewhere. Um, I think I think you'd be going to parties wearing lots of socks, and I'm going to inform on you. <laughs> <laughs> I think Olive Kitteridge would be quite bad to be locked down with. Um, do you not think? I, I think she'd be, I mean, I, I don't think she'd be a good lockdown no. companion. I think she would really struggle with right now. And I think you would want someone very serene. Um, likewise, Eeyore probably wouldn't go for. Oh, um, Eeyore would just be reading out the Guardian live stream out loud to you. <laughs> <laughs> Any of the Vogels from, you know, Man at the Helm, um, or reasons to be cheerful. I think I think Lizzie Vogel would be great company. Oh yeah, very, very good at sort of finding amusements where there are none. Um, Hilary Mackay, who wrote some of the books I absolutely loved the most when I was growing up, she had a brilliant book called The Exiles, and The Exiles at Home, I think, was a follow up, um, and it was about four sisters, I think, and they were one of those families that were just brilliant at creating their own fun, and they had this game called Omelette. 
that was just you on your hands and knees and I think they did have maybe a baby or a toddler which makes this a little bit more acceptable you just had to charge around the sofa on your hands and knees yelling omelette at the top of your voice kind of chasing each other around the sofa and then that was the whole game and <laughs> I, yeah I've always just oh, any any books with people in a very boring scenario where they're really making their own entertainment I think you would want who would be who else would be bad I mean, any of those boys from Lord of the Flies, I don't feel like they hacked it very well, did they? Be, you know, you'd, you'd be dead by, like, the first Thursday, wouldn't you? Right. <laughs> I do, I think The Borrowers is a fantastic call. And, you know, all of the sort of, you know, the things you kind of, you know, ask them to do. You could, I think, get really ambitious with your lockdown cooking if you had a team of borrowers to assist you. Yes, totally. Just loads of tiny sous chefs. I tell you what, um, is it Claire in Not Working, who I think you, you wrote mm. about in your newsletter a couple of weeks ago. Um, I absolutely bloody love that book. And I think, uh, you know, she, yeah, she's an exemplary. Um... There's that bit early on. I think she gets drunk with her boyfriend's friends and they're quite tedious. And she just spends the whole night like palming wasabi peas. Yeah. <laughs> Past the point where she feels sick and she won't get off the sofa and she's sort of flirting yeah. with Skype. She's mainly just like snaffling on these peas. Like, yeah. That weird mix of like extreme self-indulgence and masochism. Creating weird arbitrary limits for yourself and then sort of, yeah, seeing if you can hack it or not. I think that sort of impulse, I think, would be quite interesting. Oh, but she's like a heroine for these times. Did you ever read the Jennings books? No, I don't think so. I mean, they still, if I find one, they still make me laugh out loud. And they're kind of a little bit Just William-esque, but I always love them more than Just William. Youngish boys at school, and they're not naughty, but they're just quite impetuous, and they've got really, really big hearts, but they just don't think. I think any kind of boarding school book, actually, all of those characters really knew how to sort of make the most of, of life in a kind of lockdown. Oh, but that I think that's just so perfect for now. When your life is quite simple, but your feelings are really, really, really intense. And I think that feels very much like the times we, we are in. Yes. People have been falling, haven't they, into sort of two camps. It's uh, people who want to read about situations far worse than this one, like proper apocalyptic dystopian armageddon kind of novels and then then there's the me's and the you's that just want to read about very small worlds where not too much happens um but you know emotions are kind of running high and i think that yeah that that does make this sense this is my poirot's cozy day i've been longing for books i want to read about people going to pubs but not now sort of any, <laughs> anywhere between about i think 1958 and 1998 right, yeah. and that i just want lots of people just sort of having that sense where you're it's so smoky inside that you've really got to kind of screw your eyes up I do want to read about more drunk people you're right and this has just made me think Hangover Square which uh, don't ask me a single thing that's in it because I can't remember but is it Patrick Hamilton Hangover Square Hangover not Hanover no Hangover yeah and I remember that having this kind of yeah, sort of booze-steeped, slightly grimy, kind of quite um, hedonistic 
sort of vibe that I really really love in books and my one of my all-time favorite books as well God is by Evelyn Moore mm. it's one of those books I almost don't let myself reread it that often because I love it so much that it has to be saved for a special treat kind of in case of emergency break glass kind of book it's um, like Nancy Bits of Death and White Fang and you're like if I re- there's a danger I will read nothing else because I just want to yeah. read this nothing will ever live up to it um and I've been sort of thinking that you know at some point during this process I'm probably going to go back to that book because yeah just something about that glorious kind of glitzy like smoky sexy you know that everything's going wrong and they're really sort of ruining their lives and it all goes off the rails but actually at the time it's just so gorgeous and um Evelyn Moore does that wonderful thing where he sort of often brings his novels right back to the start again, mm. the way that Decline and Fall does. And with Vile Bodies, he actually predicted the outbreak of the Second World War because it was obviously written in the 20s, but a war breaks out at the end of it. And it yeah, and there's something about the kind of, that slightly surreal, you know, like it's set in our world, but is it? Yes. Kind of, the way that like weird conven- weird coincidences happen, you know, mm. and the drunken major who owes him a thousand pounds just happens to turn up on the same battlefield in France in the middle of the war. And I love, love, love books that have that kind of slightly otherworldly relationship with um, what could realistically happen in a story. Mm. You know? Yes, yes. It's as much science fiction as I want. Yeah, completely. Just, yeah. Not a full dystopia, just a blurring. Yeah, and everyone's drunk. Huge thanks to Lauren for shelf-isolating with us. How to break up with fast fashion sounds like a manual, and it is, but it's also a love letter to our complicated relationship with clothes, who we're trying to be when we dress up, loving fashion when it sometimes feels as though it just doesn't love us back. A genuine joy to read, in the way that some recipe books are absolute heaven to read in bed, even if you are never going to blanch your own almonds in a bamery. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for listening. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Follow us on social media at YBooked, the letter Y and then Booked. I hope you're all keeping as safe and sane and well and cheerful as it is possible at the moment. Please keep reading and I will see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.